Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lippman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's edition of the Lone Star Podcast. This is Pastor Trey Graham, and I'm joined by my good friend, Rabbi Dove Lipman, the world traveler. Hello, my friend. How are you today? Thank you, Pastor. Uh, it's great to be with you. You know, I've been traveling California, Chicago area. And it's wonderful to visit uh, the states. Uh, I can't. I can't wait to be back in, in the Holy Land. We do want to talk about the visit to the Holy Land by the American Vice President Mike Pence, and he made several important stops. He went to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. He went to the Kotel, which is the Hebrew term for the Western Wall, the holiest site of prayer for the Jews. And he made an important speech to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. And my friend Rabbi Lippman is a former member of the parliament and quite possibly a future member of the parliament. And so before we get into the specifics of the speech, which was very important, Vice President's Pence is a devoted Christian. He is a Bible-believing, evangelical Christian, a supporter of Israel for spiritual reasons, but also for political reasons. Before we get into the specifics of the speech, because there are several things I want us to discuss, talk about, as a former member of Parliament, what is it like when a VIP comes, a foreign dignitary comes and gives a speech? Set the scene for us. Everyone should understand that it's a very ceremonial day in the Knesset, aside from the physical side in terms of flower arrangements and red carpets and just uh, there's a different vibe in the building on the day when we have uh, VIPs of this kind who come. Everyone anticipates all day the time for the special session when the VIP will come in. The president of Israel goes to his box to be there for it as well. And it's a day of, of tremendous honor for the Knesset and for Israel. It really is a feeling of, wow, a, an important world leader has taken the time to come to our parliament, to our house, to speak to us. And it's a tremendous feeling of, of respect and dignity and a level of the Knesset. Uh, on a daily basis, you get bogged down in your work. You don't even realize how special the place is. And uh, I wasn't blessed to be there. Uh, had I been in Israel, I would have been there for the for the speech and the visit. Uh, but I, watching from afar, was able to, to, to just see that feeling that the people had and, and the vice president coming uh, really does and did uplift the Knesset and also the people of Israel. And again, before we get into the specifics of the speech, there was an incident, I believe a rather minor one, but it did get coverage in the Israeli media and the American media, and that was that some of your former colleagues, Arab members of Knesset, elected by the people of Israel as Arab Muslims to be members of the Israeli parliament, they protested, they held up some signs, and they were escorted out. And I think some of the media did the CNN usual thing of making it a bigger deal than it was. But talk about what happened and, and how unusual that is. Yeah, I actually think it's important that it happened, and that's why I'm happy that we're talking about it, because it highlights Israel as a democracy on, on two levels. 
Uh, number one, that Israel has Arab members of Knesset. There are 20% of the Israeli population is Arab, and as a democracy, they have vote, and they put their representatives in the Knesset. That's something which a lot of people don't even realize. They assume Jewish state, they hear all kinds of issues between Jews and Arabs, and it's important for people to know there are Arab members of Knesset, and I'm very thankful that my former colleagues brought that to the awareness of the world uh, by doing the protest, and that brings me to part two, which is that Israel's a country with free speech, and people are entitled to say what they want to say. There's no other country in the Middle East where this kind of episode could have happened, where anybody would shout anything at a visiting dignitary. But because it's a free country and it's a democracy, they had the right to do that. Uh, I think that they were foolish in the sense that they, they stood up as the vice president began speaking and held up signs saying that uh, Jerusalem is the capital of the Palestinian state. There is no Palestinian state, and, and Jerusalem is not the capital uh, for the Palestinian people. But that's what they chose to do. Um, they were very quickly escorted out of the room. Uh, there's actually a rule in the Knesset. I, I cannot hold up a sign in those chambers saying God is one. I can't hold up a sign saying the sky is blue. Uh, you're not allowed to hold up signs, and therefore they violated the rules, and that's why they were escorted to leave. It wasn't because we were shutting down their political statement, uh, but it was because it was a violation of Knesset rules. So that's why when you mentioned CNN and others, you know, people started making references about, oh my goodness, how the Jews threw the Arabs out of the parliament. Uh, there are rules, and if I violated the rules as a member of Knesset, I'd be escorted out uh, as well, and, and that's what happened uh, over there. So, like you said, it was a minor incident. The rest of the Knesset stood up and cheered for the vice president while it was happening, and uh, then he was able to move on to his speech. But just for all listeners to remember, Israel's a democracy. There are Arab members of Knesset that can disagree with the majority about certain things, and they have the platform to be able to vocalize that. That's part of being a free country as well. And we're thrilled that the vice president just stood there respectfully and then was able to uh, move on to his uplifting words. And let's talk about a few of the phrases that he used. Many people compared it to a sermon. Mike Pence is a devoted Christian, a devoted follower of Jesus, a supporter of Israel, as we said, for spiritual and biblical reasons. And he mentioned things like that Israel is the land of your forefathers. He talked about the return of the Jewish people after almost 2,000 years. He talked about Israel being a democracy. He used a lot of language that my people, the evangelical Christians who support Israel, very much agree with. He spoke our lingo when talking about the importance of Israel, the importance of Jerusalem being the capital of the Jewish people. So I want you as a politician, but also as a rabbi, how did you receive the language that Pence used? It was incredibly inspiring as an Israeli, as a Jew, as a religious Jew, to hear the Vice President of the United States, without any shame or any hesitation, go back to the Bible and, and quote biblical verses, talk about Abraham and his connection to Jerusalem, talk about King David and his connection to Jerusalem. This is not a new state which was founded on the heels of the Holocaust and the Jewish people somehow magically found themselves here, but this is our land, and this is our land that God has given to us. And to hear the Vice President of the United States in the Knesset chamber speak that way, uh, you know, warming the heart is not, is not a strong enough phrase to use. It was uplifting. It gives us a sense of conviction uh, in what we believe, and uh, we have such respect for the fact that he did so. There has been a lot of support from the United States for Israel over the years, and a lot of wonderful words that have been said. But to go back to the source, to go back to the Bible, to quote the actual verses, 
uh, that's something which really touched the hearts of Israelis and really uplifted us. And I have to imagine, Pastor, that even as, as Christians in America must have had that same impact on you. I was very pleased. I watched the speech. I, of course, have been to the Knesset with you many times, and it was so great for me to see an American dignitary, in this case the vice president, a fellow Christian, a fellow supporter of Israel, someone who speaks a lot of the lingo that I speak and that our people, the evangelical Christian supporters of Israel, speak. And he used that not, as you said, in kind of an embarrassed way or a shamed way. He was very vocal about it, very respectful about it. But he gave Israel what it deserved in terms of a spiritual component. There were some political topics that I want to get into in a moment, but he didn't pretend or apologize for believing that Israel was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It is the Holy Land. And at the very beginning of the speech, when your former colleagues, the Arab lawmakers, stood up and did their protest and held up their signs and they were escorted out, he said, it's great to be able to address this place, which is such a vibrant democracy. And I don't know if that was prepared text or not, but it was a great line and it was exactly right. You are, as Israelis in the Knesset, it is a democracy. And you have the right to stand up and protest, as you say, but you'll suffer the consequences for breaking decorum. I was happy that the vice president maybe said that line off the cuff, maybe not, but either way, he addressed that issue. And then he talked about how proud he was to be standing in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And just hearing those words, just hearing those words, seeing the U.S., the, the embassy website and, and the coverage saying Jerusalem, Israel, as the location of the speech. For 70 years, we couldn't have seen that. They would have said that he was speaking in Jerusalem. Poor former presidents spoke in Jerusalem. And now for the first time it says Jerusalem, Israel. And that is a, is a significant, significant change. It's not just a question of words. It's a question of recognizing reality. And it was wonderful to hear it. It was wonderful to see it. There's blessing from God that's coming uh, in, in this time as the relationship between Israel and the United States uh, gets even stronger than it was. And like I said, going back to the roots, going back to the roots, going back to the Bible, the United States was founded on the basis of belief and faith. And even he referenced, you know, back to Hebrew and to Israel, the people of Israel. Those are the founders of the United States. And uh, it's so nice to see things come full circle and to see a leader of the United States talk the same lingo. You might have heard a George Washington or a John Adams speak just a few hundred years ago. So let's get to a few specific political news items, because there were some headlines that came out of the speech and about his trip to the land. We're talking about Mike Pence, the vice president of the U.S., speaking to the Israeli parliament. One of the biggest pieces of news is that the vice president said that the promise that President Donald Trump made back in November that America would move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, it's always been a someday. Well, Mike Pence gave a actual deadline. He said by the end of next year, by the end of 2019. Well, that's obviously less than two years away. That's 18 months, basically. But he put a deadline on it. And that was a bit of news because it's no longer theory. It seems to be in action. Yeah, and actually, when the president spoke and made the announcement about Jerusalem being the capital, there were many Israelis, both on the right and the left, who pointed out, wait a minute, I mean, okay, it's nice that he mentioned that it's the capital, but there was really no movement uh, on the embassy issue, and that could be pushed off indefinitely. So was there actual progress? And that's what this speech 
uh, nipped in the bud. It was very, very clear. Uh, there's a timeline. These are people who are going to keep to the timeline. And again, what a, what a source of inspiration for us to know that that embassy uh, will be established in Jerusalem and hopefully pave the way for others as well. I always wonder, for, for you, someone sitting in, in Texas, Pastor, and other people who, who might be listening, uh, how does that impact you in terms of recognizing uh, the embassy move? Well, I think it's, to use the cliche, put your money where your mouth is. We made a promise as the United States Congress in 1995 when we passed the Jerusalem Embassy Act that we've talked about on this podcast, and I talk about it on my talk radio show as well, has been waived by the presidents because that's what the, the bill allows every six months and delayed it. And it's now been delayed for 22 years and President Trump said no more. And Vice President Pence said no more. We're going to de- not delay it any longer. Well, then the logistics come about. And the question is, can you just switch the signs? Because that's the simplistic answer that I would like you to do is just take the sign off the embassy in Tel Aviv and put it on the consulate, which is in Jerusalem, and just switch the signs and say we've done it. Well, the people who are smarter than me tell us it's more complicated than that, that the consulate's not actually big enough. You can't handle all of the diplomatic affairs and and governmental affairs in that smaller building that you have to have in the embassy, which is in Tel Aviv. So you actually have to build a new building, not only for size, but obviously for security reasons. And so Mr. Trump, who's made his money as a builder and a developer, is going to have to be involved in building a brand new building at some point. It might start by just using the consulate, but they won't end up there. And so I'm glad to see our government, A, standing with Israel in rhetoric, but B, let's do it in actions. Let's move forward with this. And I was glad to see Mike Pence put a timeline on it. Now, like with everything else we say with Mr. Trump, let's see if you keep your promises. And that's one of the big news items that came out. Another one was there's still this language by President Trump and now Vice President Pence about final status negotiations and will determine what the exact boundaries of Jerusalem will be after negotiations. And if both parties want it, meaning the Israelis and Palestinians, we still support the two-state solution, which I am not a supporter of because I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's big enough. I don't think there'll ever be an agreement to do so. But I was a little bit disappointed that we're still clinging to that theory of the so-called two-state solution. Well, the most important part, and and this is where, uh, again, uh, as an Israeli, we're so appreciative, is that they're not saying this is what you must do in Israel. That they're saying that it's up to the people. That they're saying that people on the ground have to decide and that the U.S. will be supportive of whatever direction uh, they choose to go. That's a significant, significant shift from a world in which Israel was being pushed and, and forced into corners and doing things that were detrimental to it on, on many different levels. So we live in a reality in a world where uh, there, there is an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it does have to be resolved in some way. And having a, a United States dignitary and leader saying that we are here to support the parties that are involved in this process, but we let you work it out, and that's very, very important word for Israel to hear. Um, and because uh, we know that we're the ones who have to make that decision, and whatever Israelis decide, that's what's going to have to happen. And we're the ones who understand our security concerns and our spiritual concerns. And therefore, uh, from my perspective, uh, we, we, were, we were happy to hear it in the way that he expressed it. Uh, it also 
provides a framework for all Israeli political parties to be able to be supportive uh, of the vice president and the president and the U.S. administration without them taking sides, per se, in internal Israeli politics. So I think it was said very well, and I think it was done in a way where uh, Israelis can walk away uh, very satisfied. We are going to talk about the weekly Torah portion in just a moment, but to finish up this discussion about the visit by Vice President Pence to Israel, our listeners need to be reminded that the leaders of Egypt and Jordan, the two countries to the west and east of Israel, Arabic nations, Muslim nations, those leaders, President al-Sisi of Egypt and King Abdullah of Jordan, they met with the vice president, but the leader of the Palestinian Authority, whose name is Mahmoud Abbas, he refused to meet with Mike Pence because he's rebelling against or reacting to the President Trump speech saying that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. So it's very difficult to negotiate with people who won't even have a meeting with you. Yeah, and that's, and that's, there's a saying that's gone back many, many decades that the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. To say the nasty things that President Abbas said towards President Trump uh, in general, uh, just their attitude of they won't talk with us. So don't talk with us. You're the ones who at the moment uh, don't have a state and don't have uh, whatever uh, self-determination uh, you hope to have. And we're here. We're ready. We're ready to talk. We're ready to try to figure things out. But until you're ready to come to the table, there's really nothing to talk about. And that's that, you know, hopefully the Palestinian people will, will realize this and realize the failed leadership and try to do something about it. But the one thing is for sure, the state of Israel is not going to do anything to hurt its security. It's not going to divide Jerusalem. It's not going to do things that are detrimental to the state. And no one's going to force us into doing so. So if the Palestinians right now want to sit back and not be involved in the process, then there won't be a process, and that's their decision to make. But they're the ones who are missing out on the opportunity, and I actually feel bad for the people there who are trapped in a society where it is essentially a dictatorship, and they don't have the freedoms uh, that exist in the Western world. And uh, hopefully a time will come where they'll rise up, as has happened in other countries, and they'll demand it, and they'll force it to happen. But in the meantime, Israel's going to focus on securing itself, Israel's going to focus on building its country. Hopefully our neighbors will at some point have a shift in heart and a shift in mind. But we're not going to do anything uh, proactive, uh, nothing unilateral, uh, as Israel has actually made mistakes in the past. Uh, it has to be done through an agreement uh, with the Palestinians. And if they don't want that time to come, uh, then that, that time won't come. We'll get to the Torah portion after this. I just want to sum this whole discussion up about the visit by Vice President Pence to Israel. Overall, I give it an A grade. He did an excellent speech. It was well covered in the Israeli media. It was well covered in the American media. It reinforced this tie between our two countries. It reinforced the fact that we are not pressuring Israel to do things that are detrimental to their security. Mike Pence spoke the language of the Bible, the language of a follower of Jesus. And so, well done, Mr. Vice President, and thank you for representing my country well in the country that I love so much, and that is the land of Israel. And so let's turn our attention, Rabbi, as we do every week here on the podcast, from the current to the ancient. Let's go back to the Torah portion, the weekly Bible reading that the Jews and many Christians gather around the Shabbat table and discuss. And this week comes from Exodus chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. 
The Hebrew name for this Torah portion is Beshalach, and it means when he let go. And we're picking up the story, of course, from one week ago where the final plagues came in, including the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn son, came upon the leader of Egypt who has the title of Pharaoh. He finally let the people of Israel leave slavery after 400 years of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses and Aaron and the people are let go and they begin their journey toward the promised land. We know it'll end up being a 40-year journey and so Rabbi as we get into the story of the Exodus, your people leaving slavery, one of the questions I have is how do you think they organized themselves? How were they ready to be an army? How were they ready to be a marching force How were they ready to be organized after so many years of being in bondage? What did they do to to prepare the journey, much less we'll talk about what happens along the journey? Well, that's actually part of the miracle of the story, is that they were not prepared in any manner. Uh, These were people who were slaves. Uh, They had no organized fashion, and they simply followed Moses out uh, to the desert, no plan in terms of food and, and how they're going to protect themselves. And uh, that was an act of faith. Um, we, 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 t- we quote it from the prophets where it talks about that God is, is so uh, in love with the people of Israel because they took that act of faith and because they uh, went out into the desert, uh, what we call Be'eretz uh, Lo Zeruah, in a land where nothing, nothing grows whatsoever. And they had to, over the course of the 40 years, uh, they had to prepare themselves. But remember, when they first left, it wasn't going to be 40 years. It was going to be a quick trip uh, towards Israel. They had to get themselves organized, and uh, that's part of the miracle. Part of the miracle is the ability of people to leave slavery, to be on the lowest levels of impurity, and very, very quickly, through this amazing act of faith, uh, elevate themselves to a level of spirituality where they're ready to receive the Torah, the Bible, to uh, elevate themselves out of a slave-persecuted mentality and into a functional society, an organized society. And by the way, we've talked about this, Pastor, about what we call in Hebrew, Maaseh Avot Banim. Now, what happens to the fathers happens to the children. Think about the story of the state of Israel, people who left the Holocaust and Jewish people barely survive annihilation and within just a few years are able to uh, put together a state. Uh, That's really something which we can learn from the Exodus story and the ability of people just with an act of faith to elevate themselves uh, to the high, to the highest of levels. How does the how does the Christian faith look at look at this story and its possible uh, lessons? You said it well. An act of faith. If the Lord says go, we will go. And we don't have all the answers. We're not sure how He will provide, but we trust that He is the provider. And the people of Israel leave slavery in Egypt, and soon after that. The Pharaoh and all of his leaders of the country realize that their economy, which is already in shatters because of the plagues, is now going to be ruined because all of their labor force, their slaves, have left. So they begin to chase after the former slaves, the Hebrews. And we get into this idea of, will I trust God when it's hard? It's easy to believe when it's easy, and it's hard to believe when it's hard. That's the sermon from your pastor over here. And that's what the Israelites were facing. Will I believe the Lord now that an army's chasing me? 
And will I believe the Lord when I have this big obstacle in my path, which happens to be the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds? And God performed a miracle. And a lot of people are trying to find the science on how did the winds blow and how did the tides recede and all these things. And you can maybe find the science of it, but God did it. The creator of the universe created science and weather and wind and tides. They had an obstacle in the front. They had an enemy in the back. The question is, will I believe the Lord? Will I trust him to protect me? And I want to point our reader's attention to Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. And I want to hear the rabbi give me some some teaching on this. Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. That's a call to faith. That's a call to believe. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Rabbi, talk to us about Exodus 14. Yeah, absolutely. And if you go one verse further uh, in chapter 14, just go to verse 15 where where that section continues. God even says to Moses, why are you crying to me? Go act. Go into the sea. And then God will take care. And this is also, of course, we believe in prayer, and of course, we turn to God. But God is waiting for us to act. And once we act, once we take the act of faith, then the salvation of the Lord can come. And and this is something, you know, these are a few verses here, Pastor, which sum up life on, 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 on a certain level. Just what is required of us, and then how God responds. We take that first step. We take that first step of faith and trust and then God opens up all kinds of opportunities, and the salvation can come. And that's literally what happened over here with the sea. They had to walk into the sea, and then God splits the sea for them. The miracle happens after the people of Israel take that act uh, of faith. And uh, such a critical lesson for us to remember. So many people sit back, and they're asking, why isn't God doing this, and why isn't God doing that, and waiting for, for God to come in and step in uh, when really it's in front of us to take that act of faith. It's for us to act and do so with belief and trust and faith in God, and that's where God's miracles come in, and that's where the salvation can come. The last verse of Exodus 14, after the waves have parted the waters and the Israelites walk through on dry land, and then the Lord tells Moses to lift up his hand, and the water comes crashing down on the Egyptians. You get to the last verse of Exodus 14, which is verse 31. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Well, I'll quote what I said a moment ago. It's easy to believe when it's easy. It's hard to believe when it's hard. So when the water's still in your way, it's hard to believe. When God does the miracle and brings you through on dry land, then it's easy to believe. The question is, will I believe even when it's hard? Exactly. And that's, I think, something which both of our faiths uh, share in a very, in a very close way. Um, God doesn't make life uh, easy. God does uh, present us with challenges. And the question is, how do we respond to that? What do we do with that? And do we use those opportunities to get closer to him? 
and reach even higher, or do we use those opportunities to, to pull further away? And uh, if we take advantage of those moments and, and really grow through them, then uh, remarkable things can start to happen. Uh, if we if we try to take the uh, the easy way out, so to speak, and and, and walk away from God and reject faith uh, in those moments, uh, we're actually doing ourselves a tremendous disservice and making things uh, much more complicated in the end. And now here's another troubling part of the story. When you get to Exodus chapter 15 and you've seen the miracle, the Lord has shown his power. He has shown his covenant-keeping promise. And now the journey has to move forward and you're walking through the desert. And when you get to Exodus 15 verse 22, the people of Israel are now in the wilderness of Shur. And it says in verse 22, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses and say, what shall we drink? So it's such a troubling part of the story, Rabbi. And this is true in Old Testament passages. It's true in New Testament passages with the followers of Jesus. They have faith some days and they don't have faith some days. They see the miracles of the Lord. They receive his blessings today. And tomorrow they say, what are you going to do for me now? and the grumbling and the complaining that we're all so guilty of, it's troubling to read it in a story when you when you want to say, guys, you just saw God do a work, and yet they begin to grumble and lose faith. How do you deal with that? Well, the Bible is here to show us human nature uh, so that we can learn from that, and it's exactly what the story is showing us. Human nature is we can be inspired at a certain moment and, and see God so clearly and be so selfish and, and so uh, distant from God uh, just just a moment later. And we see this story after story uh, in the Bible. We're going to see it when it comes to the uh, giving of the Bible at, at Sinai, the giving of the Torah, and then the sin of the golden calf soon after that. And you see it in many other stories uh, as well, just this, this human nature uh, where God has created us as people who are quick to forget or we make ourselves forget, I would say it that way, as we, as we try to just take care of our own needs and, and focus on the things that, that we want instead of a life of discipline and faith. Remember, uh, you know, a life of faith means that you have rules to live by. Uh, you can't always do what you want to do. And uh, human nature very much uh, wants to follow its own desires and temptations and, and selfishness. And we, we allow ourselves uh, to lapse into that. And this is something which, why we have to, on a daily basis, uh, be seeking God. On a daily basis, be seeking His miracles. On a daily basis, be seeking His involvement in our life. Because uh, we need that constant inspiration. And we need to be constantly looking to see His blessings, because that's what keeps us going. Uh, we, in our faith, uh, we say a blessing uh, before we eat uh, food. And we, we say, you know, blessed art thou our God and and we say, you're the one who brings forth bread from the ground. You're the one who has created the fruit. You're the one who has created these vegetables. Uh, and we do that because we need to constantly give ourselves uh, that reminder, or else we will convince ourselves and we will allow ourselves to forget. And that's what we have to take from the story. It's difficult to analyze why are we that way. It's more important from our perspective to, to accept the reality and then to, and to act and to make sure that we don't lapse 
uh, into that. I'm curious, do you have similar types of ideas uh, in the Christian faith? Yes, very much so. And one example comes from Matthew chapter 14, the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And this is a famous story for all Christians, and that is called the feeding of the 5,000. And it's called the 5,000 men plus women and children. So scholars think we're talking fifteen or 20,000 people. And Jesus performs a miracle by multiplying a small lunchbox of a child, a small amount of food, and Jesus as he is, we believe God, and he can perform miracles. And all of these people are fed that would have been hungry if God didn't provide, or Jesus, in this case, didn't provide. And yet, right after that story, Jesus tells his disciples to go get into a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and they begin to traverse across the lake in their boat, and the big storm comes, and they get all scared about the waves. And then the famous story of Matthew 14, Jesus walks on the water, and he comes to their boat, And they don't say, wow, Jesus has come to save me. Their answer, their reply is, oh, no, it's a ghost. And Jesus said in Matthew 14, verse 27, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. So that famous part for Christians where Peter then says, Lord, if it's you, let me come and walk on the water with you. And Jesus allowed him to do it. And that very important verse, Matthew 14, 30, he walked on the water, but seeing the wind, he became afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so, Rabbi, for our Christian audience, what we teach people is from Matthew 14 story, when you have your eyes on the Lord, you don't sink. But when you begin to look at the storms and the waves of life and you take your focus off of God, in this case, we believe the Son of God, Jesus, if you take your eyes off the Lord, that's when you sink. Yeah, and that's very much and that's very much the message, and that's going to be the story that we're going to see throughout the desert. We're going to see a people who, you know, God on the one hand is providing them with everything, and yet they're still going to story after story. Uh, they'll be complaining and they'll be whining and 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 losing sight uh, of what's really going on, and just becoming simple human beings instead of being elevated uh, children and when worshippers uh, of God, and that's such an important lesson uh, for us to learn and to make sure uh, that we just always do things, uh, to remind ourselves to always find uh, God involved in our lives so we can make sure that we have that inspiration and we don't lose that connection. And so I'm going to ask the rabbi to teach us a little bit from Exodus chapter 16 about manna, the provision of God miraculously every day to give them food to eat. We're talking about millions of people wandering around the desert. There's no Chick-fil-A. There's no Burger King. There's no falafel and shawarma. They have to eat, and the Lord provides a miracle through the provision of manna. Tell us the story of manna. So the people uh, you know, don't have what to eat, and they're complaining, and they're remembering amazingly. They're remembering what they had back in Egypt when they were slaves, but uh, they had some kind of produce, and they had some kind of food. And God's response is to provide for them. It provides them this manna. We have all kinds of teachings in our tradition in terms of what the manna was, including one which says it was whatever you wanted it to be. We as children used to always talk about what flavor ice cream we would have asked for, what type of pizza and what toppings, uh, whenever we learned about this. But the idea was that it was completely satisfying. It was satisfying physically. It was satisfying spiritually. God was providing directly uh, for, for the people. And... On the one hand, that's a wonderful, glorious thing, 
that God is providing for you uh, directly. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we're not people who are made to just sit back and receive, and we weren't really part of that process, but God needed to instill the people with faith. These years in the desert, before they entered the land of Israel, it was all about building their faith. That first act of faith of leaving Egypt, that act of faith of going into the water, and recognizing that God is the one who provides. Because when the people enter the land of Israel, and they start working the land, and the products begin, the, the produce begins to grow, they could easily lapse, as the Bible says will happen, into a belief that it's my hand, it's the strength of my work that's providing this food. So the years in the desert where God is providing them with the manna was to instill in them and in the DNA for their children forever that no matter what your situation, you go into a grocery store and you have 50 different choices of mustards and pickles and ketchups and the aisles and, and aisles and aisles of choices of cereals and other delicacies and the things that we enjoy, you can easily forget that it's God. And that story of the manna was to remind us no matter what it is, it's God behind the scenes. It's God the one uh, who is providing. And that's why we had to go through that experience uh, in the desert. And I want you to bring up the point about you were to gather for six days, but you had to trust the Lord on the seventh day, and some people didn't, and they learned the consequences of it. It's quite remarkable. You know, God um, says very clearly, I'll provide you with the manna, says very clearly that, uh, you know, there's one day of the week where it's not going to happen, and, and, but you'll be provided for anyway. And people still were afraid of well, what's going to be tomorrow. You know, what, what, what's going to be? What's happening next? And uh, again, showing human nature. God himself is providing. He's the one who's giving it to you. And yet you're still doubting or questioning. It's very often people say, if God would only provide me with an open miracle, then I'd be a person of faith. Then I'd focus on spirituality. But he's not doing so, so what can I do? And uh, we don't realize God is doing so on a daily basis. And even if he would do so, if you're not already worshiping God and a person of faith when he's providing for food and providing with life, uh, you're not going to if some open miracle happens either. Here, the people who want to complain, complained despite being provided for on a daily basis. The people who recognize that it's God, they recognize that it's God. It's within us to decide, and we can't say if God would only do X, Y, or Z, uh, then we would change. And that's why this is a story which one could look at as a, a history lesson. Oh, this is what happened when the people of Israel were in the desert. But that's a big mistake. It's a, it's a lesson for all of life. It's a lesson for God providing in general. It's a lesson for recognizing that God is always there behind the scenes, not waiting for some kind of an open miracle, and just to be people of faith in the day-to-day -day life of you having food and having your basic needs and recognizing that it's God. And, and we actually have a tradition that are people who read this section every single day at the end of prayers. They go to prayers in the morning and before they go out to work. They read the Parsha, we call it the story of the manna, to, so that when they go to work, they remember it's not their boss that's giving them their paycheck, it's not the ingenuity of their business skills and, and negotiations, it's God. And it's something which we have to remember on a daily basis. It is a beautiful lesson when you're told by the Lord, you trust me for six days and I will provide for the seventh. And it's a clear teaching. If I will listen to the Lord, even if I can't understand the math, and he provides because blessing follows obedience. But if I don't know if he'll come through on day number seven, I go ahead and collect something for my own backup plan, and on that seventh day, it's spoiled. 
because it's not from the Lord. It was about selfishness or greediness. And so we're coming to the end of today's conversation. The Torah portion is called Beshalach. It comes from Exodus chapters 13 through 17. And my rabbi friend, I want to finish our discussion with the end of chapter 17, the beautiful picture. Moses has to hold his arms up while the people of Israel go to battle, but his arms become tired. Or as Exodus 17 verse 12 says, his hands were heavy. So Aaron and Hur supported his hands. So talk about teamwork. Talk about what we as Christians call the body of Christ. Teamwork, working together, supporting one another, holding up the hands of, in this case, your literal brother. What is the lesson from that story? The starting point from our perspective is a Mishnah in the Oral Torah which says, uh, do the hands of Moshe, uh, of Moses, provide salvation? When Moses' hands were up, uh, that, that provided salvation? Moses' hands don't have that kind of power. And the Mishnah answers, and it says, no, the point is that when Moses had his hands up, the people of Israel looked heavenward, and their faith in God is what enabled them uh, to win the battle. So when you extend that to the people who are assisting Moses, this reminds us of the need to help each other spiritually, to be there for one another, to lift each other up spiritually. Of course we have to be there for each other physically, but we have a spiritual responsibility for one another as well. And we don't say, whatever happens to that person spiritually, that's his own business. We don't believe that. We believe that we are a brother's keeper. We believe that we are responsible uh, for one another. And if I right now am I'm feeling inspired and connected spiritually, I should share that with others around me and share that with my brothers. And if I'm having a down moment, I need you to be there to lift me up spiritually. So it's a physical story of Moses lifting up his hands and the, and the others helping him, but it's with a spiritual message of, first and foremost, that we have success in our battle when we are looking heavenward, and second, that in order to feel that spiritual connection, uh, we have to be there for each other and help one each other out. My rabbi friend, I wish you safe travels and a Shabbat Shalom, and I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you so much. Shabbat shalom to you as well. And, you know, when the vice president spoke, what we started with, he actually recited a blessing, a very important blessing of Shechianu, of we're thanking God for keeping us alive and bringing us to this great day. And, and I think that we can say Shechianu about the vice president coming and saying the things that he said, and that we've reached a stage where leaders of the United States can talk the language of the Bible, we can talk one another to the language of the Bible, and I think that it's a, a sign of the very special times in which we live. Amen and amen. Shabbat shalom, my friend. Shabbat shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.